whoever's listening to the Paleo Protestant podcast, we are back. Uh, Corey Moss, <clears throat> who teaches and now chairs history department here at Hillsdale College. Miles Smith, who also teaches history, representing the Anglican wing. Dr. Moss, representing the Lutheran wing. And then me, D.G. Hart, also teach at Hillsdale and representing the Presbyterian outlook, so to speak. And we're going to talk about what's in the news, although probably hoping not too much in the news, which has to do with Israel and Palestine, but also respective um, ways in which our various communions, Anglican, Lutheran, Reformed, or Presbyterian, regard Israel, how much Israel is part of our either ancient and modern, uh, how much our understandings of ancient Israel um, affect our understandings of modern Israel, which of course gets into um, eschatology. And one of the uh, reasons for bringing us together, and I think I mentioned this in the invitation to the the co-panelists, um, was a podcast I heard with Tom Woods, who was interviewing a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor about this situation and about eschatology and the bad theology that traffics around in, in American evangelical circles with regard to the eschatology and therefore different understandings of Jews and the modern state of Israel and where Israel fits in the promises surrounding Christ's return. Um, but this Lutheran pastor, it was very good, uh, interview and i will put the a link to it in the so-called show notes um but he was the lutheran pastor was making the case that lutherans are amillennial and that was somewhat surprising to me although it need not be but presbyterians in my wing of things have been amillennial and they learned a lot of that from Gerhardus Voss, who was a biblical theologian first, well, at Princeton Seminary, before that at Calvin Seminary, um, and really important figure in the development of biblical theology. But people who have read him and have, he has continues to have an influence in Orthodox Presbyterian circles, at least, con- consider themselves to be amillennial, which for People who don't know the categories, amillennial is, is kind of an, an agnosticism about post-mill, pre-mill, those sorts of questions. They're, they don't take a stand on whether they're post-mill or pre-mill because they don't think the Bible can really give you the, cat, the warrant for holding to Christ will return before the millennium or Christ will return at the end of a millennium. Um, but that... And reformed, I, 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 t- I take it too. This is really going on. I apologize to listeners and my, my co-host to be so long-winded about this. But, you know, part of what makes reformed tradition reformed is a, a lot of reflection on covenant theology. And so Voss is fitting into that tradition of figuring out redemptive history and the different, different ways in which God operates at different periods in redemptive history, how those different covenants, Abraham, Noah, Moses, David, etc., are different in certain respects. There's a lot of reflection in Reformed circles about that, and Voss is very much a part of it. 
And I just don't know as much about the Lutheran and or Anglican world and how they, they arrive at some of those questions. So I guess maybe turn it over first to Corey to see what you want to say on behalf of Lutherans. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not listened to this interview, but I it's um I, I'm glad you mentioned it because someone else had mentioned it to me and, and I don't remember who, but it, is it uh the, the Brent McGuire interview? Do you remember I the name? I think so, but I don't remember the name right away. Yeah. He's um, in Texas, it, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was um um wasn't actually a classmate of mine, but we, we overlapped at uh, a seminary in St. Louis, uh, Harvard undergrad. Uh, yeah, good, good, good guy. Um, and yeah, and he's absolutely right. Lutherans are are historically uh, amillennialist, so we we don't we don't read the the thousand years in uh, Revelation as predicting a thousand year reign of peace on earth before Christ's return, um, or we we don't. Um, don't don't hold to a sort of post millennial view. It's um, we read the book of Revelation um, as as we think John did. This is a this is sort of a a, a picture, um, but but not a prediction of like literal things that are going to happen. Um, and so for that reason, yeah, we we have we have tended not to try to fit the the people of Israel, or certainly not the nation of Israel, uh, or the rebuilding of the temple in Israel, or anything like that, into any scheme of world history by which we can you know, kind of predict what's coming next, or when the end, or when the beginning of the end is going to uh, arrive. So, so yeah, be, be, because we're amillennialists, I, I don't think that we have a real stake in a lot of the questions and or anxieties about the, the modern nation state of Israel that a lot of American Protestants do. What about the Anglicans, Miles? Yeah, well, eschatology is kind of a weird thing for Anglicans since dispensationalism, if people know the history of it, happens to be a particularly Anglican uh, heresy or uh, creation. Um, John Nelson Darby, of course, was a Church of Ireland rector and so I think what's interesting is that Anglicans um, have had a lot of DNA that um, leads to dispensationalism in the United States. But what's interesting about it is it's Anglican DNA that creates dispensationalism, um, and, but it's sort of almost exported from Anglicanism into fundamentalism. Most of the actual prelates and rectors in the Episcopal Church and the Church of England in the 19th century and the 18th century where these questions of, of um, eschatology kind of come up again. Uh, there's there's not a particular concern over millennial views. Um, the There's a relative confidence in the church. And so uh, in the church's mission, um, you obviously you have, at least in England, you have a state church. And so there's there's no one who sort of says, you know what? we should think about what to do when everything collapses because there's not an expectation of collapse. Um, when religion is so built into the institutional life of the state, the conversations are just different. American Episcopalians are interesting. Um, the Episcopal church in the United States is interesting because they don't have the same expectation that the reform do regarding eschatology one way or the other. And the reason for that is the church was so decimated in the late 18th century 
that no one has particularly high expectations of of what it's going to be able to do. Uh, the the convention that elects the bishop of um, Virginia in in 1814 is about 20 people. And so these are these are churches that are on their last leg. So you don't have the sort of concern over eschatology um, that the Reformed do, precisely because the Reformed are on the make in the 19th century. Things are going really well with them. Presbyterianism is not exploding like Wesleyans and Baptists are, but they have a lot more institutional hopes because they're creating institutions. That's not the case with the Episcopal Church. They're um, almost the eschatological dispositions are hard to find because no one's talking about. The one thing I will say is that Christian Zionism has pretty deep DNA in Anglican circles. Uh, Mm. Gerald McDermott uh, is probably one of the leading writers on that right now. Of course, this is the proposition that, that while uh, it's not dispensational at all, it's sort of the the proposition that there will be a mass conversion of Jews at the end of history, whatever the end of history happens to look like. Um, so it's it's not dispensationalism. In fact, they would be very careful to distance themselves entirely from dispensationalism. But a lot of Anglican thinkers um, are pretty friendly to Christian Zionism. The Anglican Church has a big presence in Palestine. Um, to this day, the the second Anglican bishop, or excuse me, the first and second Anglican bishops uh, in Palestine, um, the first is a Jewish convert, and the second is educated by Jews. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of Jewish DNA um, in Anglicanism, of course, there's also a lot of Arab DNA in Anglicanism, which has uh, been interesting in the last few weeks, for sure. Well, and, and on that Anglican Episcopal presence, I a uh, <clears throat> friend from grad school days, um, when I was back at Harvard Divinity School, he was my TA, Gardner Shattuck, um, just came out with a book with Oxford uh, that I also link <clears throat> in the show notes to his book on um, Anglicans in the Holy Land. He does mainly the Episcopal presence, Episcopal Church, American Episcopal Church's presence in the Holy Land, especially going back to uh, the British control um, and the kind of hopes, aspirations that went with that. Um, and, and, you know, I think, Miles kind of alludes to it as well and and where the lines are between Christian Zionism and just kind of philo-Semitism that you can trace all the way back to the Puritans at least. Again, for eschatological reasons that Miles also just brought up about a hope for conversions of Jews at the end of before Christ's return. I mean, that was very much a part of many puritans theology as i've read secondary sources on this both sides of the atlantic both in the new world and in old england and um and that runs really deep and it 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 precedes anything like darby and dispensationalism which you know i do think colors a lot of american protestants um views about israel or Jews in ways that they might, may not even actually acknowledge um, and gives American evangelical Protestants and Protestants adjacent a kind of um, regard for Jews that they don't have for Arabs. Um, and I think there are other reasons for that as well. 
uh, such as, you know, Protestants, well, Christians have a big Hebrew component of their scripture, which comes out of the Jewish experience. Um, not to mention the function of the Psalter in our worship services. If you're, I mean, there just aren't Arab sources like that that Christians are familiar with. It's a much easier move to enter into the world of Jewish thought, Jewish scriptures, than it is to try to figure out Islam and what Arab world was like before Islam. And um, in some ways, it's a much more alien world, I think, to many Christians, especially American Protestants, um, which I don't think sometimes the critics of American Protestants who who talk about a kind of um, naive love for Jews and naive love for Israel and a naive endorsement of whatever the Israeli government does, don't pay attention to that um, familiarity that American Protestants have with Jewish expressions by virtue of the Bible. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And if I could, if I could just jump in real quickly, sure. I, mean, what, what, I mean, and this goes back well before Protestantism. So, I mean, from, from, uh, I mean, as early as the fifth century, at least um, through the middle ages, when there are various sort of local, what we would now call pogroms against the Jews, um, bishops, in, including the Bishop of Rome, will intervene and mm-hmm. and insist that uh, we, we can't just wipe these people off the face of the earth because um, we, we have received uh, the scriptures from them and because that the scriptures uh, point to a, a conversion of Jews in, in the last day. And so hmm. since since this is the the, the promise, um, there, there have to be some Jews in the last day. <laughs> so so this is, yeah, this I, I mean arguably one of the things that, that Protestants wittingly or unwittingly inherit from from the Middle Ages. Um <clears throat> so that but it does lead to a question. I, we've talked before some one of our recordings about uh expository preaching um lectio continuo preaching through a book of the bible as opposed to using the lectionary which of course is what lutherans and anglicans use they use a lectionary with selected uh readings for what a three-year cycle is that right um or or a one-year cycle okay yeah um but you do have one Old Testament reading and two, one gospel and one epistle. Is that how it works? That's usually how it works, yeah. yeah. And Anglicans, obviously, or at least the Book of Common Prayer, has a lot of Psalter in it, a lot mm-hmm. of chanting of Psalms. Um, but in the, how much do Lutherans sing psalms i think we may have talked about this before yeah we 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 have an we have an option um so the 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 intro it is is a psalm or a selection of a psalm um or you can replace the the chanting of the psalm with uh with a hymn um and that's kind of 
congregational choice. My, my current congregation actually sings the psalm each Sunday, uh, the, the intro it. Hmm. But in that, in that, um, use of the lectionary for material for the homily or sermon, how do, do you have a sense of how much priests or pastors use the Old Testament part of that reading and feature that, or do they wind up featuring the gospel excerpt? Or I, I mean, I just don't know. I, I really am yeah. curious. And if it's if there's a if there's a habit among Anglican and Lutheran pastors on that one i this is a, a short answer but i think the book the in as much as the book of homilies plays a a role as one of the formulas of the the anglican faith um so much of what Cramer's doing is trying to wed of course you know things that are are in in that older lectionary and so it's been our custom to lean quite heavily into the old testament part of the reading um my guess is that might be because we are more quote unquote traditional parish um, that would be more likely to turn to something like the book of homilies as, as a guide for, for what we do for more evangelical parishes. Um, I don't, I don't know, but at least the old Testament and the life of the Jews in the old Testament pops up quite a bit. Um, at least in, in, in my parish, uh, and I think it, it's been that way in, in, in several I've attended. So I think that the the idea that the Psalter and especially the Old Testament readings points people to some sort of knowledge that we are inheriting a, a, a story that's a Jewish story, at least in some way back then, is is an unusual. I think it's something that people pick up on pretty readily. Hmm. Yeah, in, in the Lutheran world, probably... You are typically going to hear a sermon preached on the gospel reading. Um, although in, in the historic lectionary, the Old Testament is, is always sort of keyed to the gospel reading. So that there's going to be some theme or yes. some reference or allusion. So you, it's, it's sort of like the, the gospel is sort of interpreting and, and fulfilling whatever the Old Testament reading is about. Um, and sometimes the epistle reading has something to do with one or the other. Sometimes it's not at all obvious. But but yeah, I, I would say uh, nine times out of ten, um, the, the, the sermon is very explicitly on the gospel reading, but it weaves in elements of the Old Testament reading, either for background or, or explication. Mm-hmm. But and I should be clear too about um, habits in the reform world or come clean, which is that. Um, and but this is true for evangelicals. I was at the Evangelical Theological Society last week, and I gave a paper on um, sort of historical perspective on social justice, in which I was making a case that evangelicals should do less with religion and more with politics to figure out how to understand social justice and in my estimation it's it's errors um but there was a biblical scholar there presenting and he did old testament scholar in fact who was sort of talking about isaiah in the light of social justice and the kind of 
discussion of justice that the prophet brings up, another person was presenting on um, on the actual meaning of justice in kind of a natural law way of understanding it. But by the time we got to Q&A at the end, we were just back into the Old Testament. And, you know, if you want political categories from the Bible, the Old Testament is about the only place you have to go. And that leads then, has led in the past for Reformed Protestants to become, you know, theonomic. Um, I mean, to read all sorts of political programs out of the Old Testament, because here you have divinely sanctioned, divinely revealed ways of thinking about law and justice and role of government in society. Um, and of course, in my own denomination, we've, we have struggled. It's been a, it's been a while now. It's probably been 30 years, but there, there were controversies over theonomy in the eighties. And some of the theonomists traced, tried to trace their views back to Cornelius Van Til, who taught apologetics at Westminster Seminary. And, you know, some people would also argue that in that strain of Dutch Calvinism, of which um, Van Til is a part, that there is a kind of um, a theonomic tendency, especially in the sense of trying to um, look for an integrated picture of the world, an integrated picture of government and society. And when you look for integration and don't, you know, don't recognize the difference between the secular sphere, religious sphere, et cetera, <clears throat> then you can conceivably for venture more into theonomic, theocratic kinds of um, efforts to understand politics. So that's, again, that's part of the Reformed world, but I don't know if Lutherans or Anglicans have had any experience with theonomy in their circles. Wait, I think I think for Anglicans it works different, and that's not because they don't believe, say, in biblical inerrancy, but the particular hermeneutic that Reformed Christians use in their relationship to the Bible. So um, that the the Bible is 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 sort of what creates the church. I think for reformed Christians. And I think that a lot of Anglicans would be less willing to sort of inherit. Um, I mean, one of the things you hear stated regularly by Episcopalians in the 19th century and into the 20th century is that Jesus, Jesus is where the church originates. And so when it comes to political questions, one thing I, I remember, I, uh, sort of one of these kind of theonomic leaning guy, James B. Jordan, James B. Jordan said, well, when, when you, talk to a Jew, you should look at him and say, you know, that the Old Testament is is my history. It's not yours anymore because you rejected. Um, you rejected Christ. And so that the church has inherited the story of 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 the people of Israel in the Old Testament. I don't think I don't think Anglicans would say that. And I can very specifically point to the second bishop of of, of Michigan who who basically said the church should be understood as something it's not inheriting it's it's it their covenants are active but it's not inheriting the identity of the people of Israel it's inheriting the identity of Christ and so that division is what in his case allows him to say we're not establishmentarians a la the the reformers this isn't some sort of Eusebian construction but we're not 
strict spirituality of the church. He uses the example of Jesus against the Herodians. And so there's a relationship to how I think Anglicans read the Bible, that they don't step quite as much into the mantle of inheriting the Old Testament law as something that's kind of an identitarian construction for them. And that that is different. Um, and so you don't have, even when you have theocratic Anglicans, they just don't talk about the same way that, say, a theonomist does. They're just not, that conversation doesn't come up. The the Amel, though, reformed. And, and I mean, this is where I think they would, and I might also disagree a little bit on the idea of <clears throat> starting with Jesus, is the Amel types would go to Paul in Galatians and talk about, Christians as the true seed of Abraham, and that reflects the effort of Reformed, at least in their covenant theology, trying to see continuity in the history of salvation from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Jesus and beyond. And yet, you know, that appealing to Abraham, as opposed, say, to appealing to David or to one of the monarchs, um, is a very different political appeal as well, because there's no state of Israel at that point. So you're, you're thinking much more in terms of the categories of salvation and that, and, and the process of salvation and whether the monarchy may serve it or not. But it's still, you know, one big, one big story. Um, of course, of which Jesus is at the center and the f- fulfillment of all the Old Testament, but I mean, it, it's still amazing to me when we teach this, all three of us. I don't know what you guys do with it in, in Western heritage when you, when you come to it. We have, for those people listening who don't know the Hillsdale College curriculum, which you don't need to know, but in Western heritage, we, in the New Testament or the early Christian part of the course, we have, I think the, almost the whole book of Galatians in our, in our readings. A and, lot of it. Yeah. You know, so you have that appeal at the end of chapter three to Paul, um, uh, you know, talking about Christians as the true seed of Abraham before he talks about there being no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female. Um, <clears throat> and then the next chapter, he does that mind-bending piece of, of saying that um, the church is the true Jerusalem and and identifies Jerusalem of his day with Hagar and not with, with Sarah. And it's like, holy smokes, how does he possibly get away with that? And I try to, you know, talk to students about how off putting that would have been to Jewish authorities. Hello. And, um, but, but even, um, the, uh, you know, just the different ways that Christians had to sort out their own Jewish background and heritage, obviously all the, apostles and Jesus were Jews. And so they're, they're sorting all that through. But anyway, um, that's one way of trying to, you know, think about the lineage of David and sorry, Abraham. Yeah. Yeah, and just, just, just to be the pedantic college professor. <laughs> um, I mean, but one of the ways Lutherans and, and lots of others have tried to navigate this terminologically is, is to avoid speaking of, the Old Testament people as Jews. So that terminology of Jew mm-hmm. and Judaism, that's that's a second temple construction. Um, 
you know, the people of the Old Testament are Hebrews and Israelites mm-hmm. and Judaism as a distinct phenomenon is is kind of a you know a, a second temple construction and so I mean it's one of the things that I do in class is is I, yeah. I'm conscious when we're reading the Old Testament material not to talk about Jews but to talk about Israelites and to talk about Hebrews and the Hebraic tradition um which which ties into some of of what you're saying about you know who 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 is the seed of Abraham well it's it's you know those Israelites those Hebrews uh, who who believe the promise and everyone else who believes the promise it's it's not tied to Judaism as a religion with certain rituals and beliefs that is you know from 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 Jesus perspective and Paul's perspective a relatively modern construct uh, and a construct that is that is different from the you know what some people refer to as as Yahwism of of the Hebrews and Israelites right. maybe maybe that's too far into the weeds but no, I, use, I, I I use that binary too the Yah the idea that what we call the Old Testament is, is Yahwism and Judaism is a you know fifth century you know fourth fifth century BC kind of thing so and and I, I part of the reason I mention it is because I, I suspect you know if if we if we get too close to current events um, we we might talk about some of the semantic distinctions between Semitism Zionism anti Semitism anti Zionism. Um, and I mean, o- often those appear to be distinctions without differences, but but I, I think they can do helpful work if if people are speaking in in good faith. I mean, I it's a it's a it, I mean, it's 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 a good point. Um, it's just striking in hearing that, and I think I mean, I think you're right. But where does Judah? Is there a kind of um, word that's synonymous with Judah? Because is Israelites, you know, I mean, when the kingdoms divide, right? Um, and Judah is the are they the good guys, as it were? Uh, Jesus is in the lineage of <clears throat> Judah and David. Um, I don't know if there is any kind of synonym for that <clears throat> that expression of the Hebrew. Uh, people it doesn't have to be it's just funny that israelites kind of does it does it suggest anything about the northern kingdom it doesn't have to but that mm, sure, sure. is what is associated with it um <clears throat> well we have a couple other points to mention um or c- cover uh one of those is Maybe the elephant in the room, since we have a Lutheran presence, there's a there's a um, <clears throat> a common um, misconception that Lutherans, because of Luther and other associations with Germany, are anti-Semitic. Um, and uh, when we were talking before we started recording, um, Miles was saying a few things about that needs to be really pushed back against. Uh, so maybe he's the best one to do it, at least to start and let 
Corey chime in, but we don't want to make Corey sound defensive like he has to answer for <laughs> for Lutherans. Well, I, I'll, I'll start because my anecdote, how I started looking into any of this was living with a Wells, uh, a friend who's a, um, a Wisconsin Synod Lutheran. And the, we got into talking about this one night and he sent me a PDF of, and I think this is on, on the internet, you can find it a PDF of a letter that Menachem Begin, who at the time was the, I think the prime minister of Israel, who I think was an irreligious uh, Jew. Um, I don't know if Menachem Begin was religious, but who had sent a letter to Roland Bainton. Um, and he had mm. apparently been given a copy of Roland Bainton's. Um, Just for listeners who don't know that name, he was a famous biographer, professor of history at Yale Divinity School. Go ahead. Sorry. And the standard biography in the 20th century of Martin Luther. Right. Um, and uh, Begin had read, I think, parts of this and found it compelling. And so he got in touch with Roland Bainton and asked him, say, hey, look, you know, this is this is interesting. But how do you deal with, you know, how do I deal with the fact that um, Luther says all these things that are anti-Semitic? And Bainton said a famous, used a famous quote to um, so sort of push back against the idea that he was an anti-Semitic, anti-Semite, a la what we understand that term to mean <clears throat> in the aftermath of the Second World War. And Bainton said, look, you know, Luther obviously has very strong feelings about Jewish religiosity, but he also famously said, you know, the first, the first Jew, you know, any Jew that converts and knows Jesus, I will be the first person to extend the right hand of fellowship to. Um, and so what, I think it might be worth thinking about is understanding anti what's called anti-Semitism as almost a, it's almost an analog of how Lutherans felt about Catholics in the era. Uh, there's nothing biological about Jews, uh, but he's really violently against practitioners of the Jewish religion, much in the same way he feels about what he would, what we would later identify Roman Catholics. And so I think that's just pairing Luther with the way we understand down anti-Semitism downstream from the third Reich and, and the middle of the, the 20th century, I think needs to be corrected a little bit. So. Yeah. So that's, that's another point where the, the terminology, I mean, it, it can be dismissed as casuistry, but, but I think it's, it's actually in this case, really, really important. Uh, and, anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism are not the same thing. Um, so, I mean, if you think of Judaism as a religion and Semitism as, as relating to an ethnic group, um, then they're two completely different things. And to the extent that you believe the Jewish religion is in error, then, well, then of course you are against it. Um, and I, and I think Luther is very, very clear about that. Um, maybe back to the eschatological question that we began with, um, that there's kind of a background here. I mean, Luther himself is a very, has a very apocalyptic view of history. And he had convinced himself, um, probably naively, that, that once the errors of the papacy had been brought to light and corrected, then, then of course Jews would convert en masse to Christianity. Mm. And when that didn't happen, he was, in the first instance, kind of frustrated. <laughs> but when they not only did not convert to Christianity, but continued to try to convert Christians to Judaism, uh, that, that really set him off. So he writes this, this infamous 
uh, treatise late in his life titled On the Jews and Their Lies. And, and this is what most people are referring to when they want to lambast Luther as being anti-Semitic. Um, and I'm not, I'm not going to defend it, but I want to, I want to say two things about it. Uh, the, the first is simply, it, it is, uh, from, from our modern perspective, some of the things that he says are entirely indefensible. Uh, but the other thing I want to say about it is that the whole treatise is about 150 pages long, a bit more than that in a, in a modern edition. Um, all of the quotations that you see bouncing around the internet um, referring to that come from about five pages of the treatise. Uh, almost the entirety of the treatise is a theological argument against Jewish interpretations of Scripture, and Luther is refuting them with Christian interpretations of Scripture. It's, 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 it's polemical to be sure, but it's entirely within the bounds of, of theological discourse. Um, but the, the the five controversial pages, he makes a series of recommendations. Since Jews are proselytizing Christians, and that has never been allowed, since they are blaspheming Christ, which has never been allowed, then the traditional punishments for doing these things ought to be in play. Um, and he lists a whole slew of recommendations for punishment that ought to be carried out by the prince because only a legitimate government can can meet out these punishments. And the thing to note about this is everything that he recommends there is, again, shocking by modern standards, but is pretty boring by contemporary standards, contemporary 16th century standards, because it's exactly the same thing that Catholic princes have been doing to Jews for nearly a millennium at this point. Um, so taking away their scriptures, you know, pro- prohibiting the Talmud, um, forcing them into exile. Um, <clears throat> yeah, n- nobody's going to recommend that today and, and not be canceled, but uh, the, the, there's nothing unique about what, what Luther is saying there. And I'm convinced that the only reason that gets so much attention is that Luther happens to be German and the Holocaust happens in Germany. Um, and it's true that the Third Reich republishes this treatise. Um, mm. But but that is in part because uh, in the 19th century, Luther had been uh, sort of converted into a, a nationalistic icon – you know, we don't really care about Luther's theology, but we like the fact that Luther is like the the father of modern Germany, and so you'll you'll get more mileage reprinting Luther's anti-Judaic remarks than you'll get reprinting, you know, Johannes Eck's anti-Judaic remarks. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I I I, I want to mention this. Uh, there's. Uh, if if anybody's interested in, in Jewish historiography, Heinrich Greitz, Greitz, I don't know if it's Greitz or Greitz, is sort of the leading Jewish historian, German-speaking Jewish historian of the 19th century. Um, and he wrote a big 11-volume thing called The History of the Jews. It's still, it's still you know, obviously mm. a major part of Jewish historiography. But he said, he said this about Martin Luther. Um, he said that Luther was, and I'm quoting now, unquestionably the most pious and faithful man of his age within the pale of Christianity. He was also distinguished for spotless conduct in true humility. 
And that's uh, by a professor at the leading Jewish seminary in Germany in the middle of the 19th century. Hmm. So I don't, if I were to turn around and say, well, Dr. Greats, do you love Martin Luther? Might not love Martin Luther, but the idea that Martin Luther is some sort of particular anti-Semite, I think is a creation of what Corey was saying. It's all downstream from the, the Third Reich's decision to co-op, not just Luther, but a bunch of other guys as nationalist uh, symbols. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think historically that wasn't the, the idea that Luther was somehow a particular you know, originator of, of anti-Semitic thoughts, just not there. Um, just out of curiosity, have you heard homilies or sermons at your um, <clears throat> parishes or congregations about that refer to current situation in Israel, even as, I mean, maybe not the main point of the sermon, but as a, as part of the sermon or as part of the prayer because in in our church even though we're going through in the evening services <clears throat> a series on second kings um where i actually think it would be possible to bring up the differences <clears throat> between the politics of old testament israel and n- contemporary israel it hasn't come up so i'm curious if how much it's on the minds of your priest or pastor it hasn't been no. preached on um at our at our parish no and, and and even in our prayers i mean our we 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 pray a general prayer every week or the the, the pastor prays a general prayer from the prayer book every week and it's uh you know prays for peace in the world but 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 no mm-hmm. specific conflicts are mentioned you know good government is prayed for but but no specific type of government or particular regime um so no it doesn't come so up so you don't have any jews in your congregations then i guess um <laughs> um <clears throat> before we end um miles you wrote a piece at national review and i'll link it also in our webpage for this episode, but you want to say a little bit of what that's about and why, what led you to write it? I I just, I I mean, I think it's anecdotal in some ways, but you know, if you kind of grew up Christian where I did, do you kind of always quote unquote ended up rooting for the Jews? And what's interesting is I'm probably more sympathetic to Arab Christians than, than most people from small town, North Carolina, just because I've had friends who, who've been Arabs. And whatnot. So I didn't really want to, I wasn't really interested in talking about the, this, you know, the policies of the Israeli government or anything, but I think at least on the ground in the United States, there's always been this kind of dispositional philosemitism. I think, you know, what Daryl said earlier is true that, you know, for a lot of reformed Christians, reformed Christianity is in the DNA of the constitutional structures and how we talk about politics. There's just a sort of philosemitism there that, I don't know a lot about. I know Cromwell invites the Jews back in 1650 something to, to England. So the United States inherits perhaps even just a slightly more philo-Semitic disposition than other European, um, than the European states of the era. And so you, George Washington, you know, basically welcomed mm-hmm. sons of Abraham. Uh, I found John Tyler 
uh, you know, like Jews. You have just, you know, story after story of U.S. presidents and U.S. policymakers and prominent Americans just sort of always having this kind of sympathy for them. Um, and so it's just kind of built in. And it's it's right. not a creation of 1948. It's not a creation of the state of Israel. It extends way, way back, well into the 18th century. Um, you have a story. There's in 1808, a Jewish man was elected to the North Carolina House of Commons, which was the lower house. Um, and no one said anything. And this is an officially Protestant state at the time still. And in his second term, he's reelected. And only then does this one guy object. This one guy gets up and says, hey, you know, he's he's a Jew. Why are we letting him, you know, you know, he, he can't affirm the inspiration of the New Testament. And so the North Carolina House of Commons convenes a, 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 a committee to investigate this. And they said, oh, you know, OK, let's investigate if he really can't be a Protestant. And they dismissed the committee. They said there's not enough evidence that he he's he's not a Protestant. Um, and the guy's openly Jewish. And so, you know, how do they do that? Well, I think there's this disposition that Jews are kind of civil Protestants, um, whether they're religious Protestants, because they're not Catholics, right? And Jews can sort of at least put on paper a lot of the same sort of anti-Catholic dispositions that Protestants of the era could. Um, so I was just compelled by that. And I think, you know, just what's going on on the ground in the United States, a lot of what we're calling um there's certainly legitimate pro-Palestinian, uh, you know, demonstrations going on. I don't want to take away from that. But some of them are, you know, people, you know, throwing stuff at, at Jewish delis. It's it's obviously not just right. about Palestine. There's a there's <laughs> a sort of anti-Semitism that's on the ground and it's on the right, too. I mean, it's in the conservative um, milieu today and in ways it hasn't been. So um it's 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 interesting. I got a lot of anti-Semitic hate mail, and I was going to email you guys just some of the <laughs> But my favorite thing I, I found out was that um, the Confederacy was a Zionist conspiracy. Uh, hmm. a, a a a a correspondent informed me that uh, Jefferson Davis and Alex Stevens were both secret Jews, which I did not know. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah. You got to so rewrite your course now. Yeah, yeah, it changed a lot of things about how we teach the Civil War. But I think, I think to answer your question, Daryl, it's just like this is. I mean, I, maybe I'm just too normy. I was just growing up. You were like, you just kind of were like, "Hey, Jews are Jews are Americans, and Jews have had well, it rough, and it's kind of your job to look out for them." Not only that, but I mean, I'm I'm older than both of you, but way older than Miles. But growing up in the 60s and watching the late show, the Tonight Show, sorry, with Johnny Carson and all of those Jewish comics right. that were that were coming on and not to mention, you know, Hollywood, it's not as if Hollywood is run by Jewish Americans, which is a kind of a, you know, anti-Semitic trope at times. But but how can you not? I mean, I'm a huge fan my wife and I started dating and knew that <clears throat> we were sort of on a similar wavelength because of the way that we act, we reacted to Woody Allen movies in the mid seventies <laughs> when he was making Annie Hall in Manhattan. And then <clears throat> the Coen brothers are among my, my favorites uh, film directors today. I've taught a course on the Jewish roots of American humor. 
I'm teaching a course on the Jewish American experience in the spring. And one of the documentaries I will assign for that course is a wonderful documentary. It used to be on Netflix, may still be there, called When Jews Were Funny. And it's an interview with all these Jewish comedians, Jewish American largely, but some Canadian, about whether they've lost their edge and how the the rising material conditions of Jewish Americans has improved and the degree to which that affects their take on the world. But I mean, for somebody who just loves comedy and, and, and just um, is so indebted to Jewish Americans, I, I can't think of reasons to dislike, to dislike Jews. I mean, I just, I just, I just can't. And, and that, again, that's not meant to, in any way endorse the Israeli government, although I certainly am sympathetic to the Biden administration's support. But um, anyway, I and I and I just don't know the Arab American or Muslim American world as well and what the contributions have been there. And if there had, you know, if people could point me to that and I could study that more or if I were exposed to it more, it might be a different situation, at least as far as kind of level, leveling out a, a playing field of the cultural what's the the, the 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 funny word here imaginary but my imagination just runs toward Jewish Americans in ways that it doesn't to Arab or Egyptian or Muslim Americans um, and again it just seems to be that's the way it's it's worked throughout US history all right well that I don't hear anyone wanting to correct that or add to it or respond so maybe we'll end on that note and um in the meantime we will pray for peace in palestine and um we will also uh return sometime during the upcoming holidays that presbyterians do not observe (laughs) um all right thanks guys Thanks, Thanks, thanks for listening whoever's out there And we'll try to get another one of these in before the end of the year. Thanks. Take care. Take care.